today on the Tearsheet Podcast. So having spent several decades uh, uh, in, in payments and in cards in particular, uh, I have seen multiple, multiple uh, significant threats to how the issuing businesses operated, how different models like co-brands operated, uh, even how acceptance marks operated. Um, but I do believe that that three or four party system, depending on how you think about it, uh, is an incredibly powerful network. Welcome to the Tearsheet Podcast. I'm Zach Miller. Today's guest is Judd Linville. Judd has decades of experience in financial services and payments, heading up City Cards and American Express's consumer services. He's now a senior advisor at investment firm General Atlantic. He joins us to discuss the threats and opportunities within financial services and how fintech and big tech are competitively positioned to take market share. Judd Linville is my guest today on the Tearsheet Podcast. Zach, glad to be here. So, uh, Judd Linville, Senior Advisor at General Atlantic. Uh, I've been there for about three quarters of the year, so I've spent time with them on due diligence, on some prospecting, but frankly, most of my time with portfolio companies. Before that, I spent 20 years at American Express. I was President and CEO of Consumer Services, so I ran card business, traveler's check business, which we turned into a prepaid business. Uh, and also the uh, consumer travel business. Uh, moved to uh, to City and spent almost a decade there running their global payments platform and personal lending, uh, as well as the last couple of years across the bank, all of uh, digital and mobile, as well as data analytics. So great view into sort of um, both fintech and, and traditional financial services as well, right? Yep, seen a lot. So uh, while ran a bunch of those big platforms, I was always intrigued by what we could do to disrupt the, the current path. It was a pretty clunky, heavy tech uh, stack that didn't really work in an agile fashion. So I spent probably every four to six weeks heading out to City Ventures or out to the West Coast or out to Asia, looking at other trends that I thought were going to be important and accretive, uh, ultimately to our customers, but in terms of how we went to market. So, so let's start our conversation with the card business. Um, I know you sit on the board at Marquetta, so we get that um, front and center. Um, I, I'm, of, I'm of the opinion that the card companies win. Like, there's no way they don't win um, the networks. Like, can you talk about um, sort of their competitive dynamics and sort of what's happening in the card land? Yeah, sure. Um, so having spent several decades uh, uh, in, in payments and in cards in particular, uh, I have seen multiple, multiple uh, significant threats to how the issuing businesses operated, how different models like co-brands operated, uh, even how acceptance marks operated. Um, but I do believe that that three or four party system, depending on how you think about it, uh, is an incredibly powerful network. Because at, at one level, if you think about being able to bring buyers and suppliers together, removing friction uh, in any commerce interaction, what the networks and issuers have done, along with merchant acquirers, but I, I put it largely with the uh, issuers and the networks, the ability to uh, present a, a piece of plastic or these days, uh, irrespective of form factor, so whether it be NFC RFID, whether it be an EMV chip or whether a mag stripe or the like, being able to tap and go to swipe or to insert, being able to do that, uh, in, in a matter of milliseconds around the world in any country, irrespective of social custom or language or technology, is a pretty remarkable uh, feat. So at one level, that 
know, that birthright of uh, that network that's been built with an immense amount of liquidity uh, is incredibly valuable uh, and it works. Uh, I think the threats to it, you know, which we can go deeper into, uh, are always going to be around uh, one, the cost uh, of uh, card acceptance. Um, mm-hmm. So, that, uh, you know, for the last several decades, been this hot topic. And the costs have uh, lowered in terms of interchange in a bunch of different markets, sometimes because of regulatory uh, reasons, sometimes competitive. The second piece is there are a bunch of clunky elements of how you transfer money. So if you think about some types of cross-border payments that aren't supported by cards, uh, incredibly high cost uh, and, and right for disruption. The third is you know, where, where a lot of the, the profit engine is generated is around kind of the episodic lending activity. And I think that there's been a number of players who have been uh, very adept at building uh, a really intuitive, simple point of sale uh, lending capability. And so in some respects, that's also a, a natural threat to some of the cards. And then the last threat, uh, while I, I saw all of the fintech players build some elegant design UX UI, oftentimes it was narrow cast services. The one place that I think is going to be interesting to watch is some of the big tech, particularly those that have a pervasive operating system. And the reason to be there, and all you have to do is look to China and see how that kind of operating platform turned into payments. And again, mm-hmm. it wasn't replacing anything. So it was, uh, it was built with the Novo from Greenfield. Um, but uh, here, the ability to disrupt whether it's a immersive ecosystem like uh, like Apple has, or whether Amazon, or whether even uh, Google. And I think there's a reason all of them look to get into payments to, again, help kind of facilitate that flow, take friction out of it, and, and presumably re- remove costs and push more commerce through. So before we get into, I guess, the, the threats, or the actual threats, or the companies and technologies that could be threatening, I'd love to hear from you, uh, I guess, how the 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 cards and the, and the payment networks have responded to those. Like I, what I'm thinking of, like, you know, Amazon, sorry, uh, MasterCard and Visa, you know, making, being very acquisitive over the past few years and, and, and owning different rails to different types of payments. Um, can we talk a little bit, I guess, how, how they've responded to um, the competitive threats before we move into the threats themselves? Yeah, sure. Um, so let's take it um, kind of two-step. So on the issuing side, um, you know, that's where the direct connection to the consumer happens. So not on the networks, but on the issuing. If you think about it, the issuers, they bring liquidity uh, throughput to those networks, but they pay for cost of acquisition, they pay for the rewards, they underwrite the loans and basically have to deploy capital. Uh, they're, they're the ones who, in fact, if there are losses, have to have reserves on their balance sheet. So they run that massive P&L that is directly tied to the consumer. And I think the thing that many payments companies missed was uh, as the advent of a bunch of fintechs who built, as I described, kind of these very intuitive user interfaces. Um, um, what a lot of the payments companies were left with is an old tech stack, uh, oftentimes built on kind of third-party processors, sometimes proprietary, uh, but one that was not very uh, nimble, very agile, uh, certainly couldn't plug and play the APIs that were being created. And so on that one, I, I you know, I, I personally, uh, I can't say how many trips made out to, uh, to FinTechs to really study what they were doing. And frankly, in very clear and bold uh, face was to uh, reverse engineer what they were doing in terms of how they built their technology stack. How, instead of thinking about this as a cost arbitrage model, how do you use this as an NPS plus an engagement model? And then how do you completely redesign 
how you build a set of microservices uh, in agile development. And you can see the mashup of product engineers and marketers and data folks uh, so much different than the old days of you know, two or three big tech releases a year. So I think one was a, a very healthy embrace of fintechs and understanding kind of what they could reverse engineer and build themselves, what they could maybe white label or even what they could buy. I think we're going to see more of that activity. On the network side, uh, you know, the networks really uh, were not that acquisitive in, in the past, up, up until the last couple of years. And I think they've done a, a terrific job of looking to say, okay, uh, how do we move much closer to real-time payments and how do we then make acquisitions like the Vocalinks and a bunch of others that are going to bring us closer into real-time payments? How do they think about using the payment network uh, to uh, handle disbursements and a bunch of information back and forth so that, in fact, you can move money to whether it's a, a gig economy worker uh, or around the globe. Uh, and so that to me, those are you know, just very simple ways that they have looked to say, how do we either build some of our capabilities and more importantly, how do we begin to buy some of those capabilities and, and treat them as bolt-ons? So Judd, also um, data ag. Uh, we saw MasterCard buy Finicity last week and, and Visa obviously acquired Plaid earlier in the year. Can you talk about, I guess, the rationale behind those types of acquisitions? Um, yeah, so I, I've talked to obviously the senior leaders of both places who I know quite well, um, and without kind of divulging full hand, I think it's pretty obvious that 30,000 feet, let's just take Plaid as an example. Um, you know, Visa has been a great enabler of big enterprise FIs as well as credit unions and small and regional banks, uh, you know, around the world. Um, but the one thing that if you think about they were missing was the connectivity I think that they wanted to have to fintechs. Uh, and if you look at the data aggregation layer that's been built on Plaid, uh, and it certainly was a massive improvement from you know, the Yodelies and others that sat there and screen scraped in the world. Uh, and I think that a, a bunch of the kind of commerce disruptors uh, and even kind of digital challenger banks realized like this was this exactly the path to go. For Visa, then to uh, do a deal with uh, Plaid you know, brings them right into that universe uh, as a kind of first-party provider of immense important data. And if you think about it, you know the Visa, Mastercard, the networks—you know—they all they really are is a brand, a switch, and an immense amount of data aggregation. So I, think I used to refer to it as a—you know—it's basically a massive transaction processing machine that you know has an immense amount of information exhaust. And if that information exhaust, you know, the auth data and the like can be captured and repurposed, everything from preventative things for fraud or for underwriting, or more importantly for, you know, incremental uh, engagement with merchants, uh, it's an incredibly powerful engine. And, and Plaid just accelerates that. And convert, you know, on the other side, I, I think Plaid was facing some very serious challenges from banks uh, who were not wild about their model and how it operated within their environments. and many of them were beginning to push back and, and one or two pushing back pretty publicly. Sitting under the umbrella of Visa, which can act a bit like you know, Switzerland and basically act as the uh, kind of the setter uh, and good uh, setter of regulations and gov governance across payments, I think that actually helps Vlad as well. That makes a lot of sense. So, so let's switch gears a little bit into, um, I guess the technology side of things. Um, you mentioned Google before. Can you talk about, I guess, big tech's positioning and threat into the incumbent industry? How you how you see that playing out? 
Yeah, I, well, I think it has to start with recognizing that uh, each of them, whether it, it's Amazon, Apple, Google, Facebook, uh, you know, the, the reality is that they all have different business models uh, and a different right, and different assets, yeah, different assets and a different sense of purpose in terms of what what problem they're solving, uh, and so that you know a couple of the players uh, are big in terms of ad revenue. And so if you think about, you know, what payments to do to kind of close that last mile for attribution, uh, to the extent that there can be more information that can be captured over time, could you have, you know, basically level three data beyond just the MCC of merchant category code. And so there's one path that looks and says, boy, you know, could you really accelerate an advertising model of attribution? You know, a, a, another where if you think about you know, marketplaces, it's just all about throughput and greater connectivity, uh, more e-commerce volume with less uh, transaction fees and uh, and threats to the to the model. Um, in which case, uh, Amazon, or you could even argue uh, an Apple. And you know, I I, I think basically what you've seen without calling it out uh, directly is that you know many of these players are actually beginning to test what network. Um, models might look like, and so it wasn't that long ago. I certainly, uh, you know, <laughs> and always enjoyed watching how people pay and on what basis. Standing at Whole Foods not that long ago, when Apple Pay came out, and there was mm. an Apple Pay sticker right on that physical point of sale, uh, and I, you know, said to a number of senior folks, there, including uh, Eddie Q, I said, "Well, that that looks awful like like a an acceptance mark." Mm -hmm. uh, which, as you can imagine, it was a, a pretty firm denial. And I said, well, you know, if, if, if your mark is sitting there uh, on a physical point of sale and it's encouraging somebody to use a wallet, which happens to be your wallet, it gets pretty close into being a network, even though you're still riding on the network rails. Right. You know, obviously, it was not long after that Whole Foods uh, was owned by somebody who they didn't want to, uh, to flash. And, and so, obviously, that uh, Apple Pay logo uh, came off the physical point of sale, but you could see it in, in e-commerce. Uh, if you're shopping on a whole variety of sites, oftentimes high-end retailing sites, before you get to the checkout page, you'll be prompted uh, for Apple Pay. You'll also be prompted for PayPal and others. And that's even before the checkout page, which, uh, you know, Visa and MasterCard fight very hard to make sure that they have a, a prominent role in so in some cases, it's actually jumping checkout uh, and encouraging the wallet before making a choice about uh, anything else. So I, I think you see some different ways uh, in. And then the question is, uh, are there different paths that some of the big tech might go direct to merchant uh, in ways that they could settle? I think that's a much longer putt. I think it's a much more challenging one. It's got a whole lot of questions about uh, will the merchants view uh, these big tech players uh, as a as, as a client, as a collaborator, or as a competitor. Uh, and I think that's still uh, is yet to play out. Got it. I'd love to hear about some of the projects that you're working on. I know you sit on the board at Marquetta um, and you have the role at, at, at General Atlantic. So can you talk about some of the, and I, I'm interested in hearing the projects and through that, you know, a, a lens into sort of what's happening in, in the marketplace as well. Yeah. So it's, uh, so my work, now, there's a little bit of carryover uh, from some early stage stuff I was doing. I first unplugged from City before I joined uh, GA. So uh, uh, stuff and, and still kind of the, the Series A and B that uh, for me is a heck of a lot of fun because I love working with mission-driven, purposeful uh, 
founders who have, uh, uh, you know, just a massive, a big idea uh, and are just trying to tackle it with every area of energy they've got. So whether it's something like a Centrelink on synthetic fraud in uh, San Francisco, uh, and again, not any formal role, but I've been you know, uh, connected with them for quite some time because I didn't want to uh, take any formal assignments until I figured out what I was doing. Or something like an amino, which is uh, looking at the digital media supply chain. And as, as you know, if you look at a dollar that a brand puts in there and as it makes its way to an advertising agency and then a DSP and then SFB and then a publisher, you know, that, that dollar gets whittled away to uh, like 60 cents on the dollar. And so on each of those steps in that digital media supply chain are there ways to, to follow the money. And in some cases, it's a perfect use case for distributed ledger in terms of treating each ad contract, each ad unit as a contract and then following that payment all the way through. And so to me, I, you know, some of the places where I do think distributed ledger uh, can apply and make a kind of ton of sense like supply chains. And then there's companies like Marketo, which, you know, I, I know Jason has been for uh, several years and, uh, you know, they frankly set the global standard when you think about, you know, a, a truly digitally native kind of card API platform. And that's the stuff I was uh, always looking at, uh, looking at some of the user interface work, but more often looking at the various platforms that either city could ingest uh, or that we could find different ways to use pieces of those capabilities. And so that, you know, the work with Marketing team is just starting out, but, you know, I'm, I'm immensely intrigued when you think about how they can grow from whether it is the, the commerce disruptors, whether it is some of the tech giants that we talked about that they do work with, whether it is some of the kind of digital challenger neo banks that um, have popped up, uh, like for example, the, the chimes of the world and others, or whether it's the, you know, the top issuers that ultimately can they make their way into and displace a bunch of the old legacy kind of third party processors that just don't have that modern tech stack way that um, Jason and the team have built for developers. And then within the GA portfolio, obviously it's a, uh, you know, the, there's probably three or four themes that I end up getting pulled into. I sit with both the technology uh, vertical as well as the financial services or FinTech vertical globally. Uh, and so that you know, one is around kind of big data and not just big data for big data purposes, but to solve a variety of fraud or financial crimes. So think broadly, everything from AML to KYC to um, <clears throat> um, you know, all the way down into uh, fraud, whether it's first party, third party, synthetic and the like. And so, you know, companies uh, that are not a GA company, but one that uh, spend time with Nuno at Feeds Eye and have a immense amount of respect for what they're doing. Uh, the other path is around a bunch of digital mobile tools. Um, so for example, a, a company called AppsFlyer uh, which you may know is really based and does a, a, a ton of stuff at that last mile in terms of uh, mobile downloads and attributions, which to me, I mean, that is the marketing channel uh, that is primary for just about anybody who's doing more sophisticated direct-to-consumer work. And then around, you know, broader authentication, um, whether it's companies that we are looking at uh, that, uh, in the space or companies we've invested in like Clear, the bioauthentication that's happening at airports, which is, you know, we spend time working and thinking, are there ways that that same capability, that same app, that same platform can be applied to sports stadiums and entertainment venues? The same way, certainly, when you think about in the, in the COVID environment, can it apply to a health pass and everything from building entry to the like? And so, those are the kind of things that, and, and then obviously, it begins to change a model of how a business might operate. Some direct-to-consumer, some B2B, and then how do you think about 
you know, how to build that kind of sales and marketing force versus direct to consumer and how do you think about pricing? Uh, so those are the things that float my boat. And, and after you know, 30 years of playing around this space, it's a, uh, it's a uh, very familiar territory, but it's fun to be uh, directly uh, working with some just incredibly talented uh, entrepreneurs and founders. Amazing. All the different things you, you have your, your, your finger on. Um, in the remaining time, we have one last question. I'm, I'm curious um, what you think about the Galileo SoFi tie up. Yeah. Um, I, I, uh, I didn't see that one coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think many people did. <laughs> uh, and, and obviously playing around in this space, you know, uh, spent a reasonable amount of time kind of understanding what, Galileo had and, and didn't have, and, and obviously to the extent that uh, at one level you could say it's a competitor to Marketa. Mm-hmm. I don't have a, a whole lot to, to say there other than the fact that um, you know, I think the next question is going to be, so for a bunch of other uh, people on the Galileo platform, uh, does that change the way they, uh, uh, how they go to market uh, or how some of those clients uh, look at Galileo? You know, like everything, that's going to be the next set of questions that people need. You mean from a competitive standpoint, meaning that SoFi could be, if you're a lender, there's a, you're actually on a competitive platform? Yep. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, it's, and it's not, it's not new to a SoFi uh, lockup with uh, Galileo. That's always the, the kind of the next set of things that people are modeling and, and, and working through or, or negotiating. Um, but you know, I look at I, I I have an immense amount of respect for what Jason and Omri and the entire team have built at Marketa. And if you look at their client list and you know, kind of what they solve for, so whether it's you know, door delivery with the DoorDash and Instacart, mm-hmm. whether it's wallets and the like with Square, you know, I, I can go on. I mean, they they are powering the, the kind of modern use cases that new are economy, mm-hmm. yeah, the new economy exactly. Uh, in, in ways that are incredibly configurable and, and incredibly uh, developer-oriented. And they've got just a, a great customer obsession. Uh, you know, it's a product-led you know, a customer obsession. Uh, and, and founders, they have just both a, a, an immense amount of principle in how they do things, but also a, a, a heck of a lot of grit. Uh, and that's what attracted me to Marketa. Chad, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for joining us on the Tearsheet Podcast today. Zach, I enjoyed it. Thank you.